Now, today, uh, as last week, we wrapped up a series. Uh, today, we're actually going to be uh, starting another series, as I had promised last week. Um, and it's actually kind of similar to the topic that we had been talking about, or not really kind of similar, but there is a little bit of a relationship into last uh, three-week series and the next three-week series that we'll be going to. Now, they're not connected in the sense that uh, it's like a part one, part two uh, type series, um, but it's very related in the sense that we're going to be dealing with uh, talking about our present situation, our current time, in light of COVID-19 and also in light of um, the evil and suffering that we may face and see, but yet we're going to be looking towards more of the future uh, and looking at more of the hope that we can find. Um, and we're going to be talking about uh, the book of Zephaniah. Now, Zephaniah is a small book. It's only three chapters, uh, and it's found in the uh, Old Testament. And the series title is called Hope Remains. Um, and hopefully, you'll see this connection that I'm trying to make with what we're living in now uh, in our current situation to what the book of Zephaniah really has to say. And uh, because it's such a small book, the next three weeks we'll be breaking down uh, roughly the next three chapters um, of the book of Zephaniah. And so uh, I would highly recommend if you have the chance, even though we will be going through it together uh, for the next three weeks, to take the time to sit down and actually just read the entire book of Zephaniah. Like I said, it's only three chapters. It's a very small book, but I highly encourage that you, uh, as we begin this journey of the book of Zephaniah, that we dive in and really get immersed into um, this little, I guess, case study of this small uh, prophetic book of Zephaniah. And you may be wondering, okay, the, the title of this series is Hope Remains. Uh, what does that exactly mean? What does it mean that hope remains? Well, I'm not going to tell you now, uh, but you, as the title implies, I think it's pretty straightforward and pretty understandable. Um, but let me give you the overall theme in which we'll be focusing in for this series and for the book of Zephaniah. You see, this is what it is, okay? God is faithful to all of His promises. All of His promises, God is faithful, for better or for worse. And we're going to discover that Judah had been unfaithful to her covenant with God, or the country of Judah, or the kingdom of Judah. And Zephaniah was a prophet who was used to warn Judah of a coming judgment. The judgment would be fatal unless Judah repented and turn back to the Lord. And beyond the immediate historical context of this book, the promise to the nation provides a picture of what God's character is like that can be seen time and time again throughout our Bibles. And even more importantly, we're going to find that this message of judgment and restoration, and ultimately this message of hope that we find in Zephaniah, uh, is more relevant to us today than ever so. And hopefully you can see this connection and hopefully as we study the small book, you can learn more about maybe to you, it's been an unknown book. Um, I know there's a few people that I know when I say, hey, the book of Zephaniah, they're just like, Zephaniahu, like what, what is that, right? Um, and so if this is unfamiliar territory for you, we're going to dive into this together and hopefully we'll give you a little bit of a better understanding of um, what message this book has for us today. Now, uh, obviously, the book of Zephaniah is about uh, the prophet uh, whose name goes by Zephaniah, right? And Zephaniah, as a prophet, receives this message from God, 
Okay. And if you remember my series on Jonah uh, that we did a few months back, you remember that most of the prophet's message uh, and the books, they follow a very similar format. That most of the prophetic books, um, they don't really deviate from what, what you know, the, the typical structure of uh, how a prophetic book is written. And the book of Zephaniah is no different, right? It follows with a, a very brief introduction of who uh, the prophet is, and then the message, and then whether it's a story of repentance or whatnot. Jonah was a little bit unique because it's a narrative, and we don't find very many narratives of prophetic books. Uh, actually, now that I think of it, Jonah is the only narrative type um, a prophetic book, uh, but the rest of the prophets in their books uh, follow a very similar pattern. It's an introduction and then um, the message from God and the wrath and all that good stuff uh, or bad stuff depending how you look on it. Um, and it follows a very, very uh, typical format uh, like all the other prophets. So now the book of Zephaniah, uh, we can slip, uh, split it into three different parts and sections. The first section deals with the day of the Lord's judgment on Jerusalem. The second part of the book of Zephaniah talks about the day of the Lord's judgment on the nations. And then the very last section of the book talks about um, the hope for the nations and Jerusalem. Uh, and so uh, I think it's very important that before we even dive into this book any further, we kind of need to understand kind of the historical backing and the background and the, the who, what, why, when, how, you know, that all that good stuff um, about Zephaniah. So first of all, Zephaniah the prophet, he lived in the final decades of the southern kingdom, which is Judah, uh, as we find in 2 Kings 22 to 23, the chapters 22 and 23, right? So this was the time when there was King Josiah, and King Josiah was changing things up by removing idols, um, restoring temple worship, uh, so that the focus was on God and God alone. But the people were, at this point in Israel's history, were way too far gone, right? These people were just, just terrible, right? Just terrible people. And this is a very uh, common repeating theme of, of God's people in biblical times. And they had worshipped other gods, and they were so, so indulged and engaged uh, in idol worship that it was too difficult for them to really get over it. Now, we find in 2 Chronicles, um, because of King Josiah's pride, it basically caused him to die a very tragic death uh, in battle, which ultimately led to the fall of Jerusalem uh, to the Babylonians. Uh, now, the prophet Zephaniah, uh, he saw this whole thing kind of you know, uh, break out for many years. He was very aware of what was going on, uh, and he had warned the leaders of Jerusalem, actually. Uh, and we find in this book, in the book of Zephaniah, a summary of that message, which he was warning the leaders of Jerusalem uh, about what was yet to come, right? To begin, uh, I think uh, now let's go ahead and read uh, a little bit of the book of Zephaniah, and we're going to break it down as we go, and I'm going to pinpoint and uh, pull out a few key things uh, as we uh, begin this journey through Zephaniah. Let's start with Zephaniah chapter 1, uh, and we'll start with verse 1, okay? And this is what the word says. The word of the Lord came to Zephaniah, son of Cush, and the son, or Cushi, and the son of Gedaliah, and the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, during the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. Now, we have a very interesting way that uh, Zephaniah is introduced. Now, 
most prophetic books or prophet books start this way, that there's some kind of introduction to uh, the prophet. But this introduction is a little different than the others um, because it starts with this lineage uh, of, of, of Zephaniah. But it starts with the lineage that's uh, obviously is with, starting with Zephaniah, but it ends or it stops at Hezekiah. Uh, now, Hezekiah, uh, if you were not sure, uh, was the 13th king of Judah. And we see Zephaniah is actually in some way related uh, by blood to some kind of royal royalty, right? Now, um, the minor prophets, uh, interestingly, we don't get that much background information on their families and we don't really know like where they come from because the main point of the prophet is to share a message, not necessarily uh, like a biography on who they are and telling of their story. Um, now, uh, Zephaniah, uh, because he is, is introduced as somebody that has this interesting lineage connected to royal blood, uh, I think it's very important that we see the people that he's connected to and why this really makes a difference in his message. Now, uh, Hezekiah uh, was actually one of Judah's few good kings. Uh, if you know the history of Judah, the kingdom of Judah, they didn't have too many good kings, uh, not very respectable kings, but Hezekiah was one of the few good kings uh, that Judah had, right? Hezekiah was a king who purified, he repaired the temple, he got rid of idol worship, and he centralized worship of God at the temple in Jerusalem. So he was the guy that kind of brought everything back together. Now, on the flip side, Hezekiah's son, Manasseh, he did the very opposite, right? He promoted the worship of many gods, and then Manasseh's son, uh, who was Ammon, also did the same thing. And then we come to Josiah, which was another good king in the line of Judah, or in Judah's kingdom, um, who wanted to reflect his great-grandfather, which was Hezekiah, right? So if you imagine with me, it's Hezekiah, Manasseh, Ammon, and then Josiah. So that's kind of the lineage there. Um, but very interesting about this lineage, we find in the beginning is that it sets the stage for the prophet of God who is familiar with this upper class royal bloodline, right? With those that were in power, that those that had uh, royalty, right? That those that had everything that they could ever need or want, that had power, right? And he was a man who was directly involved and connected with those who were in power, which in turn gives this message uh, a very strong punch in the gut, so to say, for lack of better terms, um, to those that heard it, especially those that were in power and those that were in leadership of uh, king, uh, the kingdom of Judah's time, right? Let's go ahead and keep going now with that introduction of Zephaniah. Uh, let's go to Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 2. And this is uh, what it says. We'll go from verse 2 to 6. It says, I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both man and beast. I will sweep away the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble. When I destroy all mankind on the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this place. The very names of the idolatrous priests. Those who bow down on the roof 
to worship the starry host, those who bow down and swear by the Lord, and who also swear by Melech, those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. So, this is interesting. If you're an Old Testament scholar, then this is not as interesting. Uh, And I'm not an Old Testament scholar, so this was very interesting for me. Uh, But you notice that the message that Zephaniah begins to lay out um, to the people starts um, with this tone of judgment. And like all other prophets, there's always this sense of judgment. Um, And this tone seems to be a little harsh. And there's obviously, as you can see, a very clear picture that God is not happy. If you were to hear this message and think everything was okay, then your head was stuck in the ground somewhere and you weren't listening very clearly or you had too much earwax or something, okay? But very clearly here, when we look at this beginning message from God through the prophet Zephaniah, it's very clear that God is not happy and God is very displeased about something. Now, due to the disobedience and the betrayal of God by these people, uh, Zephaniah begins to describe the sin of Judah as three things. If we were to summarize, these are the three sins that God was very displeased about. One, it was idolatry. Two, polytheism. And three, an indifference towards God. Okay, Those are the three main things that God is just kind of laying out and saying, hey, this is a problem. Okay, And Zephaniah is sharing that with the people. You see, in verse 5, We find that there are those who bow down to God uh, and swear by the Lord Yahweh, but also to Molech, okay, which uh, in the Hebrew is actually Malcom. And if you didn't know who that was, it's in capital, so you probably assume that it's some kind of God or some kind of deity. Uh, It's an Ammonite God. And uh, that very clearly is idolatry, right? The worshiping of a God other than the God of Israel. Now, polytheism, uh, I'm sure many of us know, theism is God, um, and poly is multiple, so it's, this is the worship of many gods. Um, and then in verse 6, we find that it's gotten to the point uh, where they neither seek God or inquire of Him, right? And you have to think about it this way. How, how does a nation get to the point where the person that was leading them through everything uh, they get to the point where there's literally no like no feelings towards God. There's no need. They feel a disconnect and a lack of, of reaching out to God on part of their own personal decision, right? That they have created this, this indifference towards the God of this universe. And I think that's really crazy because how, like, what, what must have happened to these people? Even though they had seen all of this great stuff, for them to, to come to the point where God was not a part of their picture, right? God was not a part of their plan. And I guess for me as a pastor, this can be kind of bizarre because it's like, how could I ever uh, neglect or ignore that God is who he is, right? And maybe you think that way too. It's like, man, like, like how do you get to that point, right? Especially knowing what the Israelites and, and what God's people had gone through, how could they get to the point of, of an indifference towards him. Um, Now, whenever I read the prophets and the message that they have to share, uh, I can't help but see the correlation of their message and how relevant it is to us today. And I think really very clearly that the prophet's message of then is a message to us today. And a lot of the times we don't really pay attention to that, but this is why I wanted to do this series. So we could take a look at those messages and see if they mean anything to us today. And I think they do. Now, think about it this way. This is the correlation that I see and the first thing that came to my mind. 
Um, idolatry and polytheism, uh, traditionally we think of it as, you know, like a statue or, you know, when we read the Old Testament stories, we think of a golden calf um, or we think of, um, you know, some picture of some God with like 10 heads and 20 arms or like something like that, right? And so when we think of like idolatry and polytheism and the worshiping of other gods, uh, that's what we typically think of. And funny story, uh, maybe not a funny story. Uh, when I was growing up, uh, obviously growing up in the church, you know, we taught the Ten Commandments. And I always thought like the Ten Commandments relatively uh, were not like that hard to keep. Um, if you just think about it for face value, like thou shalt murder, like, oh, I don't, I don't have any like intentions to kill anyone anytime soon. So like nothing to worry about. Uh, honor my mother and father. Oh yeah, like I can respect my mom and dad and I can like, like listen to them and do what they want me to do. Oh, I can keep the Sabbath. I do it already. So like, you know, I go every week, like what's the big deal? Uh, but out of the 10, there was two of them that I thought were like, oh, like this is like, oh, this is so irrelevant to me. Like, like I like can't break it, nor can I really like keep it, I guess. And so I was always confused. It's the first two commandments, right? I am the Lord your God, right? Thou shalt have no other gods before me, right? And so this idea, the first two commandments have this ideal of like worshiping other gods and whatnot. And so I always thought like, dude, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna build a golden calf in my backyard. Like I'm not gonna build like some weird statue and worship it. Like, what do I have to worry about it? You know, and that's what I used to always think about the commandments. But if you really think about that commandment, and if you really think about this ideal of idol worship and uh, polytheism, I think it's so much more relative or so much more real to us today because polytheism and idolatry in the modern sense is not necessarily a physical, actual God that we worship, but maybe it's anything that we put before Yahweh, the God of the universe. Is it success? Is it wealth? Is it your achievements? Is it your accolades? Is it school? Is it your studies? Is it your work? Is it your recreation time? Is it your video games? Is it your phone? Is it social media? Is it your TV? Is it singers, actors, actresses? You see, I think modern day idolatry, modern day polytheism, right? Or the modern day worshiping of many gods. We're not talking about like Greek mythology. We're not talking about like, like these fictional gods that are described in movies or in our history books. We're talking about real things in our life today. That's what modern idolatry is, you guys. Okay. Or maybe, you know, when we think about this message of like indifference towards God, and I, like for me, it's like, you know, how is that even possible? But maybe you're in a position where like God is neglected. You don't bring things to God in prayer. God is just a thing that happens on the weekend or God is something that because my parents said so, uh, like I worship God, right? That's also an indifference towards God, right? Or I could care less or like God's opinion doesn't matter to me. I think that's all equivalent to an indifference towards God. You see, this message that Zephaniah shares to the people of then, I feel like is a message that speaks to us in 2020, right? There are idols that we put before God. There are things that we, we say that are greater or above God, or we ignore God altogether. Maybe you know someone, or maybe you've been in that position 
where you've ignored God and put God to the side and thought His opinion was irrelevant to your life. Let's continue. Verse 7. Let's read the rest. Verse 7 to verse 18. Uh, It says, Be silent before the Sovereign Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated those He has invited. On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all those clad in foreign clothes. On that day, I will punish all who avoid stepping on the threshold, who fill the temple of their gods with violence and deceit. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will go up from the fish gate, wailing from the new quarter and a loud crash from the hills. Wail, you will live in the market district. Are you who live in the market district? All your merchants will be wiped out. All who trade with silver will be destroyed. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent, who are like wine left on its dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing, either bad or good. Verse 13, their wealth will be plundered, their houses demolished. Though they build houses, they will not live in them. Though they plant vineyards, they will not drink the wine. The great day of the Lord is near. Near and coming quickly. The cry of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty warrior shouts his battle cry. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, and a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the corner towers. I will bring such distress on all people that they will grow about like those who are blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. In the fire of his jealousy, the whole earth will be consumed for he will make a sudden end of all who live on the earth. Now, When we think of the notion, and one kind of theme that I want to pull out from this this reading, uh, the day of the Lord. Uh, And we've talked about this before. I believe I've talked about this before. I'm not remembering clearly. Um, But when we think of the notion, the day of the Lord, what do we tend to think of? What is our thought when we think of the day of the Lord? Now, uh, typically, uh, or maybe not typically, but typically when we think in, in biblical circles or in uh, uh, theological circles, when we think of uh, the day of the Lord, there's usually these images of destruction, uh, of judgment, uh, basically of the end, right? Um, the day of the Lord language is used a lot, especially in the book of Revelation, but very prevalently throughout uh, the Old Testament works as well. Uh, notably, one of my favorite minor prophets, which is uh, the book of Amos, and I, I have shared a, a sermon about this, uses this language that the day of the Lord is near. But I think it's very important that we understand the context of why this language is used so much and why the day of the Lord is such a significant uh, term that's used in this context of Zephaniah as well. Uh, so I want to give you guys a little bit more context, uh, context and meaning uh, and to give you a little bit more insight. So in order to understand this imagery, we have to rewind back to the beginning of time. And so that means when you look at Genesis in the very beginning in the creation story, um, this is uh, this is what happens, okay? And I we're not going to read through it, and uh, I'll basically summarize to the best of my ability uh, of the creation story and the points that I want to pull out from this. But basically, uh, God creates the world as we know, 
and then within that creation, God creates free moral agents. Or in other words, God creates us as human beings that have a choice and decision to make any decision that we want, right? God did not create us as robots. Uh, God rather created us as these free moral agents. And it's very important in understanding the nature of God and the character of God. And uh, I shared it a while back, um, actually for a Friday Vespers, a little bit about this notion uh, and something that we will talk about in a future series or a future study um, as well. But God creates us as these free uh, moral agents, giving us the freedom and the authority as human beings to do as we desire. Now, Satan comes along in the form of a serpent and then offers them this promise, right? That they would not surely die if they ate of the fruit, which would give them the knowledge of good and evil. So basically, Satan here is giving them the permission or giving Adam and Eve the opportunity to say, hey, you can do what you want. You don't have to listen to what God is trying to say. You can take that fruit and you can have the authority to choose what is right and choose what is wrong. You have that ability and that opportunity, right? And so uh, we know uh, what happens, right? In their attempt to be like God by being able to determine what was good and what was evil and to know all of that, uh, everything goes downhill, right? And then after that, uh, throughout the Bible, story after story, we have things about broken relationships. We see hurt. We see struggle. We see violence. We see so many different things happening in the narrative of the Bible, uh, which leads us eventually to the story of the Tower of Babel. Uh, And Babel in the Hebrew is actually Babylon. So, In this story, as we know, uh, people are now trying to build their way up to God. Or in other words, trying to put themselves up to the level of God, uh, to the status of God, to know good and to know evil. Now, from here on out uh, and throughout the Bible, and we as Adventists know this very well, Babylon is used to symbolize um, or is the icon of human rebellion against God, right? And we... uh, After this story, uh, we fast forward and we find the Israelites are now in captivity in the land of Egypt, right? And so uh, two weeks ago, we watched a movie uh, with the youth, um, Joseph, the king of, or king of dreams, uh, the Joseph uh, animation. Uh, And so basically the Israelites come to Egypt and, you know, time goes by, they repopulate and they start overpopulating and the Egyptians start getting afraid that, oh, there's too many of them. And so their response is to kill off the firstborn sons, right? And so they oppress them. uh, They make the Israelites their slaves. And then this is where we find the Israelite nation, right? Uh, Then the Egyptians, in other words, are the people that are defining good and evil and in a sense have become a, a, a Babylon prototype, right? They are the ones that are afflicting pain, afflicting suffering, afflicting uh, hurt and issues to the um, Israelite or God's people, right? And from here, God takes that, this wickedness and turns it back on towards the Egyptians, right? In doing so, um, or by, by means of the Red Sea, right? As the uh, Israelites escape Egypt and cross the Red Sea, and then God puts the Red Sea, you know, back in its place, and basically the Egyptians died, right? And in Exodus 15, we find this story in the celebration that Moses and the Israelites are having. And typically, Exodus 15 is considered or called the Song of Moses. Now, basically, in this chapter, if you want to take a time to look at it, we find the celebration that God is their warrior, 
right? God is the liberator of evil uh, that had once oppressed them. And the Israelites actually refer to this song in Exodus 15 as the day in which the Lord uh, did this for them, right? And the Israelites actually practice this and celebrate this every year during the festival of the Passover. Now, over time uh, and throughout the Bible, we find story after story of Israel being caught in this notion of captivity, right? This is like a very reoccurring theme, uh, theme in the Israelite story. And it happens again and again and again. And so the day of the Lord to the people of the Bible uh, was something that they all longed for, something that they wished would come soon. Because it was a day in which God would redeem them from their suffering and their pain and oppression that they were facing, right? Uh, and in this sense, uh, they, they had this, this notion that there was hope that God would eventually pull through in whatever circumstance they found themselves in, and they would be safe. But we find interestingly, interestingly in the book of Amos, but also in the book of Zephaniah, that the day of the Lord isn't this, this lovey-dovey, very like, like look forward to kind of day, right? Uh, and if you read the book of Revelation or remember for any of my sermons, I never really talk or we never really, or people don't really talk about the day of the Lord as being a day of celebration. It's depicted as this like, terrible, like dredged, like, like terrible day uh, that you, no one wants to look forward to, right? Uh, in the beginning of Zephaniah, we find God is bringing the day of the Lord onto the people uh, against Judah, right? And then all the lands. And we find later, and we'll discover next week and the week after, that their neighbors also, uh, not just Judah, will also get punished as well. And the reason is this. It's because God's very people have fallen into this trap and this notion of idolatry, polytheism, and an indifference towards God. And I can't help but think how relevant that is to us today, right? Modern-day idolatry, modern-day polytheism, modern-day indifferences towards God. You see, Zephaniah is calling the people of Israel, the people of the kingdom of Judah, to wake up, to listen, to hear this wrath that is soon coming. Let's continue, and then I'll share my kind of closing thoughts. Chapter 2, verse 1 to 3, this is what it says. It says, Gather together, gather yourselves together, you shameful people. Nation, sorry, you shameful nation. Verse 2, Before the decree takes effect, and the day passes like wind-blown shaft, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's wrath comes upon you, seek the Lord. All you humble of the land, you who do what he commands, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. Now, there's a tendency, uh, and unfortunately, I think it's a very uh, unfortunate tendency that we have, that when we look at the Old Testament, and we especially look at the minor prophets, uh, we paint this picture of a God who is always angry um, and forever is angry at his people. And that's usually the, the, the kind of impression that we get of God. But I want you guys to know that when you study the book of the prophets, minor prophet and major prophet, and you look at the Bible, you see that God gives his judgment um, or so-called his wrath. Uh, we have to understand that, there, uh, that God in doing so leaves room for us to return. And I've shared this before in my Jonah series, and I've shared in the past series where we talked a little bit about judgment 
um, and the purpose of God's judgment, we have to remember that God's judgment and God, the purpose of His judgment is not to make us miserable, to make us feel sad all the time and to be scary and to scare us into worshiping God and, and fearing Him. But the purpose of God's judgment was to lead us back into repentance, into His grace, into His love and His mercy, right? Judgment is an expression of His love. Right? It's the loving thing that God chooses to do because He sees us as His children, as His very own, right? Because He sees us as, as wonderful children of God, that He's willing to go that far to make us turn from our ways, right? To repent, to turn 180 from the wrong path that we're going to bring us back into the Father. And you'll notice, and you'll notice in this series as well as we wrap up uh, in two weeks, that you'll see that the message of the prophets never really ends on a sour note. That the prophet has a message of hope, and especially in the book of Zephaniah, as scary as it may seem, as, as, as disappointing and as, as um, terrifying as it may be, God always leaves us hope. There's always room for us to come back to the Father, to turn from our sinful ways, and to seek God. You see, Zephaniah here, is very clearly giving us this warning, especially in chapter 2. He's telling us to get ourselves together, right? He's trying to warn the nation to get together and to, to fix things and make things right. You see, the warning signs are very clear, and the warning signs are there. Zephaniah is very clear that there is this warning. And God is being very clear and straightforward with exactly what is making uh, him very displeased. And... It's very clear that the day of the Lord is coming soon, but He wants us to be ready for that day. You see, I think the day of the Lord, we have to understand. Yes, it's depicted as this scary thing and this scary thought in the Bible. And it seems like a day of destruction because the minor prophets, that's all they talk about. But we have to remember the initial day of the Lord celebration was a day that's like, hey, God was victorious. God was my warrior. God did this for me and pulled me out of this struggle so that I could be free. That never changes. The day of the Lord is still a day of celebration, but it's only a day of celebration if you are in tune and following what God has to say for you. Let me say that one more time. That's so important. The day of the Lord may be a day that's depicted as a day of wrath and a day of anger from God. But the day of the Lord is a day of celebration. And that never changes despite the fact that we find in the Old Testament, uh, the minor prophets, that God is like this. But what's important is that the day of the Lord is only a celebration when we are in line with what God has for us. right? What God initially intended and planned for us is the only time the day of the Lord is a day to look forward to. But very clearly, we see that God is giving this warning through the prophet Zephaniah, that, hey, something is not right. You are not going in the right direction. So now is the time to repent, to turn around and come back to the Father's love. Because once you do so, the day of the Lord becomes a day of celebration and not a day of doom or turmoil. Now, how does this relate to us today? What does that mean to us in 2020? You see, especially with all this time to reflect, and as I've shared for many weeks now, with this quarantine and stay-home order, I think it's the op perfect opportunity for us to really reflect where we stand with God. 
And, you know, like Zephaniah's audience that he's really speaking to, especially to those that are in power and that have wealth and riches and have authority, these people, if you think about it, are the people that have the comforts of life as well. How many of us have the comforts of this world, yet we forget that God is calling us as a part? as a very particular group of people for a very particular reason. But we forget that because we're so caught up in our modern-day idolatry. We're so caught up in our modern-day worship of other things, of many other gods. Yes, we may come to church once a week, but the rest of the week, we put other things and invest our time and money into things that, that are not of God, of things of this world. It's a scary wake up call. But we have to remember that this wake-up call of Zephaniah to us in 2020 is a call and and a wake-up for us to turn from our ways and to come to God and say, God, like, yes, I live in the comforts of this world. Yes, I have many different gods that I I worship, right? But now I want to take it up to you because I want this day of the Lord to be a day of celebration and not a day of doom and destruction as is talked about in Zephaniah. So church, I want to challenge us, especially at a time like now, where coronavirus, this COVID-19, and how life has radically changed for each and every one of us, to take the opportunity to reflect on where you stand with God, to ask yourself, am I right with God today? Are there some things that are holding me back from having a fulfilling relationship with God? Are there some things that I see in this world, the hurt, the suffering, the evil, that puts fear in my heart because I'm not right with God? Maybe you've had that thought that that God is coming, Jesus really may be coming soon, and I'm not ready, like I I don't want to die, like I don't want Jesus to come yet. If these are the things or the thoughts that you foster in your mind, maybe now is the time to really reflect and say, hey, maybe now is the time to turn around to gather together and to wake up and say, you know what, God, like this warning message is very clear and I want to follow you. And so church, uh, I want to not really do an altar call or anything like that. But if from your homes, from wherever you may be, to make a vow and a commitment, to take today, to make the next few days, to reflect on the priorities of your life, to look at the comforts of your life and to say, God, am I really ready for your coming? And to, to realign where you stand with God. If this, this message of Zephaniah is a message of turning away from your evil and to face God, then I pray that this would be the opportunity for you to listen to those warning signs and to seek God in all that you do. Let's pray. 